Good morning. I'm opening for Giselle today. <laughs> After three days, they found him in the temple courtyard. He was sitting with the teachers. He was listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard them was amazed of how much he understood. They, they also were amazed at his answers. When his parents saw him, they were amazed. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been worried about you. We have been looking for you everywhere. Why did you... Why were you looking for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But, did, but they did not understand what he meant by that. Then he went back to Nazareth with them, and he obeyed them. But his mother kept, out, kept all these things like a secret treasure in her heart. Jesus became wiser and stronger. He also became more and more pleasing to God and to people. So what we just read, what we listened to, um, thank you, Desi, what she just read was the account, the only account that we have of the youth of Jesus. This is the only account we have. Luke is the only one who talks about it. And so this is a very important time at this moment. What we just read was when Mary and Joseph and Jesus traveled to Jerusalem because it was as in a Jewish culture, being a Jew, it was normal to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, at least once a year, to go and, you know, worship at the time, especially if you didn't live in the area. And so they go, but when they leave in their caravan with many, many people, Mary and Joseph just assumed that Jesus was somewhere in the caravan, somewhere around with all the many people. So if you ever worry about your parenthood, for those parents... You didn't leave your child, you know, for three days and realize he was missing. So Mary and Joseph go back and rush to Jerusalem, realizing that Jesus isn't with their family. So they go back to Jerusalem and they find Jesus. And where do they find Jesus? He is in the temple. He's sitting down, listening, talking, teaching. He's responding, answering and question and giving questions. But Jesus is there in the temple. And so in this moment, we already see in just these few verses, we're already seeing this matureness, this dignity, and this wisdom that Jesus has. It's amazing. It's really cool to see that this point in Jesus' life, he's only 12 years old, and we see this. We also see two other things aside from this. By the time of Jesus' bar mitzvah, you know, 13, by the time of his bar mitzvah, he's 12 years old, he is already understanding his purpose. He is already understanding his divine purpose, his messianic purpose, the, that he will be the Messiah. He's already understanding that he's going to be the savior of this world, that this is what scripture says about him. He's already understanding this. He's, he's noticing it. He's learning what his purpose on earth is for. The other thing that we notice is after the way, the way he responds to Mary. Mary says, Joseph, I mean, sorry, Jesus well, why would you do this to, your, to, to us? You know, we were worried about you and your father and I, you know, were worried and we came and you're here. And Jesus says, hmm, don't you know that I'm supposed to be with my father? After, you know, but not Joseph's father, his father, father, his heavenly father. He knows. In this moment, what we see is that Jesus is already driven by this divine compulsion to be wherever God, his father, wants him to be. He's already driven by this, by the spirit. The spirit's already lead him. He's already following the lead of the spirit because he's driven by this compulsion to follow and to do God's will. And we don't just see it here as a 12-year-old boy, but as he gets older, we see it too, that he needs to go through Samaria in order to meet with this certain Samaritan woman. 
that he needs to take his time walking through the crowd because there's a woman that's about to touch his cloak and he's about to heal her. He knows that he needs to be driven and led to the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to go and to, te- and, and to face the testing, the temptation that's about to happen so that he may continue to grow in, that, in, in his purpose. So we see it now, but we see it as he gets older. He's already driven by the desire to follow God's will. He's driven by it. And then there's verse 52. And for those of you who might not know, upstairs for our orange curriculum that we do, orange curriculum is based off of this verse, Luke 252. That's why the curriculum is called 252 Kids Curriculum. But it's Luke 2, verse 52, and this is what it says. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. But this is the only place it says that. If we go back a little bit to verse 40, verse 40 says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So, It didn't just start when he was 12 years old that he began to grow in wisdom in favor of God and in physicality. It wasn't until until that he was 12 that this started happening. It's been going on. By Mary and Joseph doing their part and taking um, Jesus to the temple whenever they needed to go, not just taking him to the temple, but being a Jewish family, they were probably at home singing different psalms to him. They were probably reciting the Torah to him, reciting the... First, excuse me, so that he can become memorized with this too, so that he may know. Mary and Joseph were doing their part in raising Jesus to know about God, to know about his father, because they also knew the purpose that he was on earth for. Mary was told before um, Jesus was in her womb that she was about to have a baby, and the baby was going to be the savior of this world. So they knew that this is why Jesus was here. And so Jesus is growing. He is growing physically, he's growing socially, and he's growing spiritually. He's growing in favor to please God, and people are favoring him too. The temple leaders were amazed and astonished and confused that this 12-year-old boy was already teaching them and speaking with such authority. His parents are noticing this wisdom that's growing inside of him too, and they're amazed that he is growing. They're amazed by it. They love it. And we love seeing that. This is the one description that we have Jesus' youth, and it's awesome. We see him growing. And I think that we can all agree, I'm pretty sure we can all agree, that this is the way we want our next generation too. We want our next generation to grow physically, to grow healthy, of course. We want our next generation to grow stronger in who they are, and who God is. We want them to grow spiritually, to grow in the wisdom of God, to learn more about who God is. We want them to learn their purpose here on earth too, to know why they are here, to know who, who created them, who put them here. We want them to have that divine compulsion, to be guided by the Spirit so that they desire to do God's will in every part of their life. We want that for the next generation. We want them to confuse and amaze people for their love of God. From those who are crawlers all the way to those who are in their last year of, scene of, of high school, we want that for this next generation. We want them to know about it. I think we can all agree with that. And as parents, you know, as parents, we are responsible, we are the first and foremost responsible to instruct and to teach our children in the way they should go. We are responsible for these, these lives that we get to teach and tell them about who this God that we serve is. But walking alongside the parents, 
are is the church. Walking alongside the parents are you, the church. Us. We're walking alongside them, and so we are also responsible for the next generation. Because the parents, they can't and they shouldn't do it on on their own. The church as a whole is also here to help with the next generation to show them. And so maybe you're, you might think, why? You know, why, why am I responsible? I mean, I don't have grandkids, or I don't have kids, or, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm good. Like, oh, kids are kind of different. Youth, I don't know, they're too cool for me. You know, we, we, you might be asking why, or maybe if you're not asking why, because you're like, yeah, you know, I, I know that we're responsible. I know that we should take the youth and the next generation and help them grow. But maybe you're wondering, how am I supposed to do that? I mean, I feel like I can't relate to anyone. I can't, I feel like maybe, you know, I'm kind of out of that already, or, you know, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing, and that's not really my thing to do, right? You know, there's other people who can. And so we're trying to figure out how to do it too. So we're going to try to figure that out together today. We're going to try to figure out how that might look. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for allowing us to be here to get to sing praises to you, to get to worship you, God, to not just get to worship you, but thank you that the kids here and the youth here, they get to watch their parents, they get to watch the adults praise you too, God, that they may see how much we love you. And we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you that we get to be here to listen and to learn something from what you have to say to us, God, that you may help us and give us the strength to understand why and to know how we can um, impact those around us, how we can do your mission in the next generation and how we can um, be guided by you above all, to depend on you because we can't do it without you, God. Spirit, guide us, and we ask you that you may open the hearts and minds of your people, that you may take away anything that doesn't need to be said, and we just ask you to guide us and to be with us in this moment. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to ask the volunteers I asked this week um, if they can come up, and we're going to do our little deal. So if all the volunteers I had... And if you guys can line up by age, please, that would be great. Sorry, Kathy, I'm sorry. <laughs> so this, yeah, Kathy, and yeah, you guys can do it on your own. I'm not going to put you where you're supposed to be. <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do is a really quick game of a game called Telephone. Some of you know what telephone is. Maybe some of you have heard it as whisper down the lane. Kathy, what was the way that you said gossip? We called it gossip. Yep. There you go. Gossip. So you guys have heard it in different, there's different ways that this has been called. But we're going to play a quick game of it, just one round. And so if you don't, still have no idea what I'm talking about, what we're going to do is I'm going to whisper something into Kathy's ear. And Kathy is going to whisper it to Jennifer and so on and so on. And so we're going to see if what I told Kathy is what comes out of Trenton's mouth. All right, so I'm going to get my paper to make sure I don't, no one can see it. Okay, and I'm going to, of course, take my mic off, so. Okay, hopefully it's, let me double check. What did you get out of it? 
What did you hear? Whatever you think you heard, just say it. I don't know. <laughs> Not sure? Okay, Lainey, what was, what was it that you told My her? favorite thing to do in the afternoon is watch... Um, I don't remember what she said. <laughs> okay, so this is... You guys could just stay on here for a few seconds. So this is a really silly game. We have no idea. What I said was... My favorite thing to do on a rainy afternoon is watch Lord of the Rings and party like a hobbit. That's not really what I like to do, but the, it was the sentence. So, this is, this is what the sentence was. Obviously, it did not end the way it started um, with a few different wording, too. So, this is a silly game, right? It's fun to kind of play. It's fun to kind of teach a certain other lessons behind it. But this is something that we do every single day of our lives, Sundays, Wednesdays, through, for years, from generations to generations, if you've noticed, that's kind of why I ordered them from oldest to youngest, is because this is something that we do and we've done for years. We're passing information down from generation to generation to generation and hoping that they get the information that we kind of started with. And the question that we kind of want to ask is, what is the information that we're passing down? What information do we want to pass down? And not just that, but are we saying it clearly enough so that way it gets to where it needs to get to and continue to be clear? You guys can take a seat. Thank you. Let's give a round of applause for our volunteers. So in the Old Testament, we also see this practice going on. In the Old Testament, we see a lot of this um, after God does something amazing and this incredible miracle or miraculous work, or he does this awesome deed, or there are laws that he gives to the Israelites and to the nations, or whether it's certain festivals that he's talking about and what they're supposed to do for the festival and how long they're supposed to do it, or sometimes to remind them of what he's done. God kind of does this too. He tells them, tell your children. Tell your grandchildren. Tell the grandchildren's children. Tell them for generations to come. Tell them so that they may not forget what has been done here. So that they may not forget what I have commanded you. So that they may not forget. It's a constant thing that God is telling them through the Old Testament that we see that he wants people to know. He wants people to hear it, to see it, and then to go and tell it. It's a responsibility. It's a decree. It's not just a request, but it's a decree to the Israelites, to these people in the Old Testament. It's a decree. It's an assignment. It's a responsibility that they have. Once they've seen, once they've heard, once they know, they have the responsibility to also go and tell. And so there's a psalm that we're going to look at that kind of helps out with this of what I want to share with you today. Now this psalm, the psalm, there's a lot of psalms, right? So the book of Psalms, there's a guy called Asaph who writes some of the psalms. Asaph writes 12 of these psalms. Now these 12 psalms, he writes chapter, um, he writes cha- he writes chapter 50. And then he also writes chapter 73 through 83. Those are the psalms that Asaph writes. There's a little bunch of songs, psalms. Now, Asaph, well, we don't know. I really love the historical background stuff. And I think historical background stuff helps us kind of get to understand a little better when we get into a text. 
So Asaph, he was appointed as a music leader by David to be in the tabernacle and then also the temple when they built the temple. He was appointed by King David. So this is obviously after King David is King David, once the temple is around. And the book of Psalms, what we know, is divided into five different books. Book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. We're in book three. And if you guys would like to go, we're going to be in chapter 78. Psalm 78, a psalm of Asaph. What we know so far about this psalm is, during this time, is that the temple, the temple of God, has been moved. It wasn't Shiloh and Ephraim, but now it's in Zion and Judah. We've heard a lot about Zion. We hear Zion a lot. It's a constant thing that we remember. When we think of Zion, we're like, oh yeah, New Jerusalem, holy city, this is the city of God, Zion. But this move, the temple being moved, it was a command from God. God wanted the temple to be moved to Zion in Judah. It was God's purpose to do that. It was divine purpose because Judah becomes the family line where Jesus comes out from. It was the symbol of, you know, first my temple, my presence is within you in Judah, but not only that, but my son, Jesus, will come from this tribe too. So it was kind of this, this, this um, defined purpose. But it was also a divine judgment against Ephraim. Ephraim, well, we kind of know, verse 9 kind of tells us a little bit about this, just a quick snippet. But there was some type of battle. There's some type of thing that happened with Ephraim, with the tribe. And Ephraim, instead of being courageous and depending on God's strength and depending on him being there for them, instead, they were cowardly. They didn't, they didn't really battle. So that's why I say battle. They didn't battle. They were, they were cowardly. They didn't depend on God. They didn't depend that he would be there for them and give them the strength that they need. And aside from that, to kind of add on to it, Ephraim also began to show the same characteristics of the Egypt, or not Egyptians, of the Israelites when they left Egypt. They began to be rebellious, complaining about who God is and why they had to serve God. They began to be very sinful. And God says that it reminded them of this character of the, of the Israelites when they left Egypt when they were just complaining, rebelling, serving a golden calf instead of serving him, forgetting that God had just take them, taken them out of slavery. They began to be the same way. So Asaph writes this psalm in a way to call them out, to kind of call them out and remind them what their responsibility is, to remind them about what they've heard and what they know and what they're supposed to do about it because they're not doing it. So verses 1 through 8, it's that reminder. It's that reminder of the responsibility that they have. After verse 8, from verses 9 through 72, it is this huge back and forth going on. It's this back and forth of God did blank, but Israel, they did not, or they did many evil things, dot, dot, dot. But despite that, God did blank. So it's this kind of back and forth going on of what happened in the wilderness, what was happening in Israel, what they were doing wrong. And you, we're not going to read the entire chapter, of course, um, because that would be a whole lot of great information I could share with you probably. But, you know, we're going to stick to verses one through eight. So that way we can see what application this gives to us, what this is saying to us for today. So we're going to read verses one through eight. There you go. Yeah. Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I am saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. 
I would teach you hidden lessons from our past, stories we have heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. And... There you go. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instruction to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children. So the next generation might know them. And even the children not yet born. And they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God. Not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Then... They will, be not, they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. So why are we responsible for this next generation? Well, here, Asaph, at this moment, this, the, the, when he's writing this passage, Israel, at this point, they're falling and they've begin, begun to believe this idea of self-sufficiency that they could do it on their own, that they've been on their own, they've been doing things on their own, that they're strong enough, that they're able enough, that they're sufficient for themselves, that they don't need to rely or to obey all of these commands from God. They're falling for this idea, they're believing it, and Asaph is trying to remind them of the command that was given to them long ago, the command that they also agreed to do long ago. They were supposed to pass on something important, and that important thing was God's goodness, his deeds, his loving grace and forgiveness that he constantly showed the Israelites over and over and over again through the generations. That was their responsibility to go and share that, what, they, what they've heard, what they know, and what they've seen. And the reason they're called, the reason Asaph is reminding them about this, why they're supposed to do it, is not just for their own benefit. It's not just so that they could get straight with God and continue on so that way they find favor with God but it was because it just didn't benefit them. It wasn't just for them. The reason was so that, in verses um, seven, so that the next generation may set their hope in God. So that this next generation may not forget the things that he's done. So that this next generation may obey the commands of God. Obey his commands, not just through, you know, as long as I do my to-do list, I'm good, but obey because of the love that they have, because of the God that they know, the things that God has done. And because of that love, wanting to obey, wanting to do his will, wanting to do what he has for them. That is why Asaph is trying to remind them about all of that. And then there's another reason too, verse eight, to be better than the previous generation to be better. So it's a call to get their story straight because they have a responsibility. And if they don't themselves model and teach God's goodness, they can't expect their children to do the same. They can't expect their children to follow along and love, Jesus, love God if they themselves are not modeling and teaching this idea too because they're falling for this other idea of self-sufficiency. And they kind of need to get it straight so that way they can be able to pass down the true faith of a true God. And because we all know that children do. They do. Children watch. Children listen. 
children are looking, and then children like to copy. They like to copy what they see. Like this morning, Micah was following Asher around and copying the way he was walking and just walking right behind him, just copying what he was doing and how he was stepping on the, on the floor. Kids watch, they listen, and they copy. They mimic what they're seeing at. It's how they learn. It's how they learn to speak. When we say, oh, can you say dog? It's how they learn. It's how they learn to react. When, there's a, when, when something bad happens, you know, the tantrums or the getting upset or getting sad, when they learn to laugh, where it starts off where they just kind of do this fake laugh because they see someone else laughing, so then they just laugh too, to where they begin to create their own laugh because they think something's really funny and they, they just burst out laughing. It's how they learn to react and to speak. This is how kids learn. They, they see and they do. And so Israel needed that reminder of the why, that your children are watching you, your, your grandchildren are watching you, so remember why you're supposed to pass down this faith. So why are we, the church, responsible for this next generation? What does this, how does this play into our lives? How does this play a part in our lives? Well, the first thing is just like Israel had this mission, this decree, It is our mission for the kingdom of God. The next generation is part of our mission. Just like the Israelites, we have heard and we know the good works that God has done. We've read and we've heard the stories, either if you grew up in church or either if you're just starting to grow to church, you, you listen to the stories of God creating the world, of God, because of his love, just pouring out and wanting to create. Because of his love, Adam and Eve had clothes to wear. Because of his love, he wanted to continue on and gave them a promise of a savior who would come and save all of humanity. We see and hear the stories of God raising up prophets and leaders in Israel so that way the people can kind of get it together and understand what's happening, but he helps the prophets give them strength when no one's listening and they still continue on their work in God. We see the stories of Jesus being born in a manger and Jesus growing up to be great and Jesus dying on a cross. But then not only that, but we see the resurrection. We hear the resurrection story of Jesus coming back to life so that we could also rise and be able to be with him in eternity. We see the different stories of different leaders growing and building the church through the strength, through the love of Jesus, despite the bad things that are happening around them, despite the fact that many people didn't like that they were preaching this Jesus gospel. There's a lot of things that we see and we hear, but not just what we read in, you know, the greatest book of all time, but also what we ourselves have seen when we've seen God work in our own lives. When we see God completely liberate a person, when he, we, when he liberates us from addiction, when he liberates someone we love from addiction or from a life they once lived and now completely are sold out for Jesus. We see and we've, we've watched the healings take place when Jesus, when Jesus just completely heals a person and they get to live such a beautiful life. We see also the peace and the comfort that Jesus gives when the outcome that we hope for doesn't happen. We also also see the amazing strength in life that God gives us whenever life feels like it's just drowning us. We see the amazing good works of God whenever we have the blessing that we've been waiting for, hoping for, for years. 
and we see the awesome hand of God whenever we're not sure and we're trying our best to follow based off the wisdom that he gives us, trying to decide things for our life and seeing things line up. And we see his hand guiding us because we want to do his will. We've seen it for ourselves. You know the stories yourselves of the way God has worked in your life and the things that God has done for you, the things that God has done for others around you. And because of that, because of what we know, because of what we've heard, because of what we've seen, Jesus gives us a mission before he leaves the earth. He gives us a mission. And one of my favorite books, it's called The Mission of God's People. And the guy who wrote it is called Christopher Wright. And this is one thing that he says in his book that has stuck with me for years. I read it in college and it's still stuck with me. To know God is to be challenged to make God known. That to know God is to be challenged to make God known. So in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus gives us a mission. He gives us the challenge. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 18 through 20, this is what it says. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So based on his authority, not our own, not our self-sufficiency, but based on his authority, Jesus' authority, we get to go and make disciples of all nations, of all ages, everywhere, to get to share what he's done. But this verse isn't a request. It isn't, hey guys, you know, I know I came back to life from everything, right? And I'm about to go back to heaven. So it would be great if you can go and tell other people, you know, that I did all of this, it'd be great. I mean, if you feel a little nervous, you know, you don't have to, but you know, I'd appreciate it if you did. All right. Okay. See you later. And no, it was a command. This is what it entailed. So in here, there are four different verbs, but there's only one main verb and that is make disciples. Oh, it kind of rearranged. But anyway, so make disciples. So just pretend the circles around make disciples. So make disciples is the one main verb in the sentence. The other verbs are go. I'm assuming that it's probably not going to underline the right ones either. There you go. Yeah. So it is go, baptizing, and teaching. Those are the three supporting. Yeah. Those are the three supporting Participles. Those are the supporting ones for the one main verb that is make disciples. Make disciples is also the only imperative word. Imperative verb is something that is a command. It's not just a request. It's not just a, something that's been completed and so you, or something that you should keep going, but it is an urgent command. An imperative verb is an urgent command. So make disciples, when Jesus says make disciples, This is your urgent command. And these other three is how you do it. When you go, when you teach, and when you baptize is how you are going to make disciples for this kingdom, for this mission that you have on this earth. And the going and the teaching and the baptizing, that's going to look different for us all. 
It's going to look different the way that we do it, where we're at when we're doing it. It's going to look different. But the main verb, the main mission is the same, to make disciples. How we do it will look different, but the mission and the goal is the same for all of us, to make disciples of all nations, of all ages, of all people. That is it. To make disciples who go and will continue to make disciples who make disciples that would take up their cross every day to deny themselves, themselves, not because we're telling them to do it, not because we're telling them like, oh, this is what the Bible says, so you do it, but also because aside from teaching them, we're also modeling it. We ourselves are taking up our cross so that they can see what a faithful life to live for Jesus through mistakes, through forgiveness, through grace looks like so that they can know and see that it is possible to live a life fully for Jesus. That is what we do. And that is the why. Why are we responsible for the next generation? Because it is part of our mission for this generation. It was part of our mission to do that. And it's not just, of course, for certain ages. It's not just until you're past your 40s and you think you have your life together and you know you think you can start really discipling people now. It's for everyone. It's for those seven-year-olds who've already accepted Jesus and have been baptized, and it's your turn to now start telling others about the Jesus that you love. It's for those of you in high school who have accepted Jesus, who are maybe the minority in a high school where not a whole lot of people maybe love Jesus, but it's your turn to be that city on a hill, to be that light, so that others can see what a life for Jesus looks like. Maybe it is you being in your workplace and not being around people who love or really care about Jesus or or God or religion, and it is you to be the light, to be the light, to be an example, a testimony of what Jesus has done in your life and how much you love him, how much you love them. It's going to look different. So that is our why, because it's our mission. But there's another why. We haven't just been given a mission, but we've also promised ourselves. We've given a promise. During baby dedications and baptisms, the people up here are supposed to do, uh, the pastor gives them a question, they give a response. During baby dedications, it's the same thing. And then at the end of each one, they have the church stand up. First, they ask the parents. As parents, do you pledge as parents with God's fatherly help that you will bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, making every reasonable effort with patience and love, lots of patience, to build the word of God, the character of Christ, and the joy of the Lord into their lives. And as parents, we say, I will. And then the pastor asks the church to stand up. And he says, as the church, church, are you willing to take on the responsibility to love care and support these parents as they work to pass on their faith to their children, promising to love them, to equip them, pray for them and with them, supporting by example and involvement in their lives as they work toward this end. If you agree, please say, I will. That's what we say I will too. And it's easy to forget, you know, life happens, you get busy, you maybe don't feel like you, you know, can relate to certain ages or maybe you don't know if you should, but this is what we agree to. 
We are called to be the church, walking alongside the next generation so that they may trust and set their hope in our great and awesome God to not forget all that he has done and all that he will do and that they may do better than us. That is our why. We want them to grow up and raise. I tell, I joke with Kyle all the time how um, Kyle's going to grow, I mean Micah, sorry, Micah's going to grow up and he's going to be this awesome biblical scholar and he's going to go all over the place, archaeology in all different parts of Asia, well currently Turkey, Asia Minor, and go in archaeological digs and come back with a bunch of different information and be able to learn Greek and Hebrew perfectly. And I joke around with him and he's just getting a head start as he watches me do my Hebrew homework. But We want them to be better. We want them to learn and to not do the same mistakes that we do. We want them to grow up and learn and know of how much they can do at a younger age because maybe we didn't realize that when we were younger. We want them to be better. And so we figured out the why. We know the why because it is our mission, because we've promised as the church to be, to help and to equip But what about the how? Maybe you already figured, you were like, yeah, I knew all of this, but how? How can we help this next generation? What can I do to help kids? What can I do to help youth? What can I do to to help them and to grow up and to be better? What can they learn from me? So I thought, what better way to figure out what the next generation wants than to ask a few of them and to get responses from them? So I messaged a few parents if they could ask their kids these questions and they could send them back to me. Or I messaged some youth and I also messaged some young adults who are out of school or who um, are in college or who, you know, maybe have moved on from Oakton to go somewhere else. I've asked certain different ones just to see what they would say. I asked them, as a church, as a church what do you hope the church do for you? Or in another way, what did you hope the church did for you when you were younger? And what do you hope to do for others? So these are a few of the responses. For Miss Giselle to keep teaching us because she's amazing. So I had to throw that one in. I had to make sure that one's at least on the top of the list. Now, before I get to the more serious ones, right? Okay. Now, come alongside me when I'm doing or going through difficult times. When I'm, come alongside me when I'm down or going through difficult times, sorry. Push me in my walk and challenge me in my faith. Provide accountability and ask me real questions about my spiritual walk. Have mentors that I can trust and talk to when I struggle and know that I can count on those reliable people. To encourage me in my walk with Christ and to have accountability. To be introduced to many different messages and lessons. To know I am loved and cared about and expect for them to teach me to do the same thing. To teach me and correct me when I'm wrong and to not just let me continue to live in sin. To give me spiritual and mental support. To help me say yes, but also know when to say no. To get me out of my comfort zone in Christ and with others. To provide opportunities and examples to live out the examples set for us in the Bible. To provide opportunities for us to find our gifts and investing in us to be able to grow those are a few hows. And maybe for you in this moment, it looks like praying. Praying for the parents. 
praying for the kids that you know. And maybe it also means praying and seeing if God is putting someone in your heart to be constantly checking up on or to kind of just put under your wings. Maybe it means that God has been tugging at your heart for a while. You've been very hesitant. And this is kind of a, huh, maybe I should be getting into something. Or, you know, maybe it's God calling you to either be a teacher for Sunday school, a teacher for youth, for kids, to be a helper and just help whenever you're needed, to teach how to play musical instruments or to the youth or to be a youth mentor to youth who need someone to just be able to talk to, to kind of confide in another example of Christ in their lives. Maybe it's saying yes to being a bus driver and driving kids around so that way they can get to the places they need to get to or to youth wherever they need to get to. Maybe it's being a small group leader, whether it's for young adults or whether it's for kids, being a small group leader that they can count on. Whatever it may look like, whatever we see, whatever it may look like for us, our mission and our calling is the same. We're called to be the church so that the next generation may trust and set their hope in our great God, so that they may not forget what he has done and what he will do, and that they may do better than us. I'm going to ask if the, all of the um, worship team, praise team can come up, please. And it only makes sense that after studying this psalm, we should praise and worship God too to continue on. And so this moment is to remember, to remember the why, to remember our mission, to remember that God is the one who gives us the strength to step out. And if we're scared or nervous, he uses that to push us into continuing on because we know how important it is. Jesus was 12 years old. It's a very critical time. Many people say that by the time a child, that most salvations happen before 18 years old. Most of them happen before 12 years old. More than 46% happen before 12 years old. And once they hit 18, once they hit 21, it gets harder, harder to come to Jesus. Children, youth, the next generation, they're at a critical point in their lives. And we want to be the church. That's why we have these family Sundays. That's why we started, so that they know that they have a place in the church, in the body of Christ. That they're seen, that they are encouraged, and they are welcome to learn and grow their gifts. So we will be the church. So if you can stand, we're going to praise, we're going to worship, we're going to remember the why, we're going to remember the good things that God has done in our lives. We're going to pray. We're going to get to do that so that way we don't forget. We don't forget the mission. We don't forget the good things that God has done.